The following sermon is by Josh Tancordo, the teaching pastor at Redeeming Grace Church in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Redeeming Grace is a gospel-centered church that values rich biblical teaching and authentic Christian community. Learn more by visiting our website at redeeminggracepittsburgh.com. This morning we're beginning a journey working through the book of 1 Peter, passage by passage. And the first passage we come to is 1 Peter Chapter 1, verses 1 through 2. It says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are the elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray this morning. Father, we thank you so much for the gift of your word. And we pray what Jesus prayed in John chapter 17, that you would sanctify us by the truth. Your word is truth. We understand from this that your word isn't just true, but the very standard of truth itself. Your word is truth. And so please, Lord, would you use your word by your Holy Spirit to sanctify your people this morning. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You don't have to be an astute cultural observer to recognize that we're in the midst of uh, one of the most rapid and significant cultural transitions that has ever taken place, and that things don't seem to be going in a particularly uh, encouraging direction. Uh, the tide seems to be quickly turning against uh, Christian values and, in many cases, against Christians themselves. You know, those of us who are Christians are increasingly being viewed as, well, honestly, intolerant and hateful uh, bigots who are a threat to the prevailing social order. And as a result, we are being, uh, in many cases, marginalized and even systematically excluded from many public institutions, and in some cases, are even facing opposition that's, that's so direct that it threatens our ability to do things like earn a living. I mean, just ask Jack Phillips. Right? The, the owner of Masterpiece Cake Shop there in Colorado. Uh, as many of you are probably aware, Jack is a Christian who refuses to make cakes that celebrate the uh, LGBT lifestyle uh, because doing so would be a form of participation in those celebrations. And even though the Supreme Court has ruled in his favor on two separate occasions, I understand, I just recently heard, there's now a third uh, lawsuit that's been filed against Jack. So this is a guy who has spent the past eight years of his life uh, fighting legal battles in court, and now it looks like he is in for several additional years as well. And in addition to these, the, the stress of all these legal battles, Jack's also, I was reading, has lost a lot of employees because of this, lost a lot of business because of this, and has even been receiving a lot of hateful letters and calls and even some death threats. 
And this, of course, is just one example among many that uh, I could cite of American culture becoming increasingly, um, in, in some cases, hostile, certainly unfriendly and at times hostile toward Christians. I mean, there are plenty of other examples. Just maybe try being a, a, a teacher in a public school and be, being very open about your faith in the classroom and see how long <laughs> you'll last in that position, right? Or just take the, maybe the top 20 uh, most popular movies from the past two years and try to count how many of them portray Bible-believing Christians in a positive way. <laughs> Probably not very many. And things seem to progressively be getting worse, right? To be a Christian is increasingly to be an outsider in modern-day American society. And things that the direction does not seem to be good. It seems as though the, maybe the storm clouds are gathering, you could say, and the wind is blowing, and the leaves are rustling, and it seems as though there may very well be a storm in our future. All this is enough to leave many Christians feeling discouraged and perhaps even a bit anxious as we wonder what the future will hold. Thankfully, though, this isn't anything new. <laughs> We're not venturing into uncharted territory here. Instead, our situation is actually one that's been relatively normal for many Christians throughout the centuries and even for many Christians presently in other parts of the world. Not only that, the Bible has so much to say to Christians who are being marginalized in their society. And one of the places where the Bible does so in an especially focused and direct way is in the book of 1 Peter. So now that we've finished our sermon series, I think it took us about a year and a half um, going through the book of Genesis, passage by passage, 50 chapters, we're going to handle a, something smaller this time, uh, five chapters of 1 Peter, and we'll spend several months uh, going through this letter. Because if there's one book in the Bible that speaks to Christians who are being marginalized and experiencing opposition in, in their society, it's this book right here. In these five chapters, Peter gives some incredibly valuable guidance for living as a faithful Christian in an increasingly unfriendly and at times even hostile society. So what truths do we most need to hear in the midst of these challenging circumstances? How can we respond to these challenges in a way that honors God? How can we not only survive but even flourish in our faith during times such as these? So all of these questions and more are going to be addressed in 1 Peter. Now, as the name implies, this letter was written by the Apostle Peter, probably from Rome around 62 or 63 AD. He wrote it to Christians in several regions of the nation that we now know as Turkey. As I mentioned, these Christians were enduring intense opposition and even persecution because of their faith in Christ. And so Peter writes to encourage them in the midst of what they're going through. He actually begins doing this immediately, even in his opening greeting to them in verses 1 and 2, which is the portion of the letter we'll be focusing on today. 
Uh, Look with me again at what Peter writes in these two verses. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. So, looking at these verses, what is the very first way that Peter seeks to encourage these suffering and persecuted Christians? Well, it's with the doctrine of election, of course. Um, In verse 1, Peter refers to his readers as elect exiles. And that's actually the main idea of these verses. Christians are elect exiles. And we're going to see, as we go throughout, just how encouraging that is. Now, in case you're a little confused, the word elect here has nothing to do with political elections. All right, it's simply another word for being chosen. Uh, In the New Testament, when uh, it says that someone's elect, it simply means that God has chosen uh, an individual to be a recipient of his saving grace. He's chosen them for salvation. Yet the idea of being elect isn't just a a New Testament idea. It has roots in the Old Testament. In Deuteronomy 7, 6, for example, we find a statement about the Israelites as a nation Uh, being God's chosen people. Moses says to them, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. And just like the Israelites were God's chosen people in the Old Testament, Peter says here in our main passage that Christians are God's chosen people in the New Testament. Now, it's not to say that the New Testament doesn't teach any future for ethnic Israelites. I believe it does. But the emphasis and the focus is certainly on Christians as the elect people of God. Then moving forward in the verse, Peter doesn't just refer to his readers as elect. He calls them elect exiles. Isn't that an intriguing phrase? Elect exiles. Initially, that phrase seems to be an oxymoron, doesn't it? Like a contradiction in terms. At the very least, it's a very unusual combination. Because when we think of exiles, we don't typically think of people who are in a privileged position. And yet, according to Peter, Christians are actually both elect and exiles. Now, he's speaking, of course, not of a literal exile, as we typically think of it, but of the fact that we currently find ourselves in a place that's not our true home. Uh, The Greek word translated as exiles there is also translated as aliens and foreigners and sojourners, all referring to people who live far away from their homeland. And yet I really appreciate the ESV's translation here as exiles because it makes The parallel that I believe Peter intended between New Testament Christians and 
Old Testament Israelites more clear. So I believe that Peter's intentionally using the imagery of Israel's exile in the Old Testament to speak of the present condition of Christians in the New Testament. So make sure you understand that. According to Peter, just like the Israelites were in exile for a period of time in Babylon, those of us who are Christians are likewise in a kind of exile. We're citizens of God's kingdom, and yet here we are on earth. And let me just say that that's not a reality that I believe a lot of Christians in America have grasped very well all the time. Uh, Christianity has historically been so favored in our country that many Christians have forgotten or seem to have forgotten that we're not like living in Israel here. Right? We are living in Babylon. And I believe the recent developments in our country over the past several years have made it very clear uh, that, that we are living in Babylon as exiles in a foreign land. And as I'm sure you understand, when you're in exile, you don't expect to fit in. Right? You don't expect to feel at home because you're not at home. Um, you know, the first person who comes to my mind when I think of someone today who's in like literal exile is uh, Edward Snowden. Uh, most of you are probably aware that Edward Snowden used to work for the NSA, uh, but became very concerned about the NSA doing some unlawful activities, and so he leaked a bunch of documents to journalists in uh, an effort to make the situation public and ended up having to move to uh, Russia, I believe it is, where he's been residing for the past decade. And I would imagine that living in Russia has probably you know, taken some just getting used to uh, for, for him, right? I mean, Russians, of course, speak a different language uh, with a different alphabet, even. Uh, of course, there's different customs, different traditions, just a different way of doing things. And so we wouldn't usually expect people living in exile to be altogether comfortable in their new living situation. We wouldn't expect them to feel entirely at home in a place that's so far removed from, from their home and that's so unfamiliar to them. And according to Peter, that's the situation Christians are in right now. Like we are Israelites living in Babylon. We might enjoy many religious liberties in America, praise God for that, but let's not forget that we are still in exile. This world is not our home. This nation is not our home. And so as Christianity becomes increasingly marginalized in our society, just remember, like I said earlier, that this isn't some kind of new uncharted territory that we're entering into here, right? This is normal. Like, this is what we should expect as exiles. The situation we've been in, in the past, with Christianity being so favored, that's what's kind of strange. <laughs> the current situation we're entering into of Christianity falling into disfavor and being marginalized is actually a very normal and expected situation Biblically speaking. And then as we continue on, and look what Peter writes in verse 1, we see he refers to his readers not just as elect exiles, but as elect exiles of the dispersion. Notice that capital D 
on the word dispersion in the ESV. And this is, that's because it's a technical term that is typically used in the New Testament to refer to the dispersion of Jews throughout the Roman Empire. Uh, and yet here, Paul's using it to refer not to Jews, but to Christians. And uh, not to Jewish Christians either, but to Christians who were probably ethnically Gentile, at least the majority of them. Uh, by the way, the, the reason it seems likely that the majority of Peter's audience was probably uh, Gentiles rather than Jews, is because of the things he says about them later in the letter. Uh, for example, in 1 Peter 1.14, he tells them, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Since Jewish people had the Old Testament, it seems unlikely Peter would speak of their former ignorance. And a few verses later, in verse 18, Peter talks about them being ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. Again, that's not something he'd likely say about Jews. And then once again, in 1 Peter 2.10, he says, Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. All these ways Peter speaks of his audience makes it seem very likely that the majority of them were probably Gentile Christians rather than Jewish Christians. And then as we continue moving forward in chapter 1, verse 1, we see Peter addresses his letters to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in certain geographic areas. You can see these on a map that we'll display up here. Uh, they're in uh, red in the, the upper right-hand corner of the map. There's Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. All of them kind of grouped together uh, again, in what we know as uh, modern-day Turkey. So, that's verse 1. Right? There's a lot in it, but just remember that the two most important words are elect exiles. Everything else in verse 1, and actually in verse 2 as well, is built around those two words. And uh, before we go any further, I'd just like for us to notice that Peter's approach in encouraging his original audience here is heavily theological. We've already seen the rich theological significance of the word elect and the word exiles, and things are actually about to get even more theological <laughs> in verse 2. Uh, just look real quick at what verse 2 says. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood. So this is some, like some heavy theology that Peter starts out with right in these first two verses in an effort to encourage these suffering Christians. And one reason why I believe that's such an important thing, uh, such an important feature for us to take note of, is because many Christians nowadays seem to be maybe a little standoffish about learning substantive theological truths. Now, perhaps some of these Christians are somewhat intimidated by you know, the, the idea of studying theology, or maybe they just don't see how relevant theology is for their everyday lives, or maybe it's a combination of, of those two things or, or something else. But for whatever reason, it, it's led many Christians to be uh, relatively uninterested or at least lacking in enthusiasm for studying and learning theological truths. And yet notice Peter's approach 
to, to his readers in this letter. Like right off the bat, he hits them with a heavy dose of substantive, meaty theological truths, right? There's no appetizer here, right? This is the main course, steak and potatoes, right off the bat. So why do you think he does that? Because conceivably, you know, if many American Christians today received a letter like this during a time when they were suffering intense persecution, you know, they might not have a very deep appreciation for it. You know, their attitude might be, hey, Peter, you know, we don't really have time to learn, like, all this theology here. Right? We're suffering. <laughs> you know, we're being persecuted. We just need to, like, focus on getting through this and, like, practical things for our lives to, to help us survive this situation. We don't got time for all this, this theological study. And yet Peter understands that the greatest way he can provide encouragement for these suffering Christians he's writing to is by reminding them of these substantive theological truths here. He understands that substantive theological reflection is exactly what they need in order to be encouraged and sustained in the midst of their suffering. And the same goes for us today. You know, if you want to thrive, in your relationship with God and have a faith that's durable enough to get you through whatever trials might and inevitably will come your way, you can't stay in the kiddie pool when it comes to learning about theological, biblical truths, specifically the kind of truths that, that Peter addresses in this letter here. You need to get out of the kiddie pool and really start learning these things and grasping these things and cherishing these things. That's what will get you through the difficult times in your life. Think about this building we're in right now. You know, this building is supported by numerous steel beams that are very thick and that are strategically organized in order to hold up this structure. Right? The, the reason that we can all be sitting here on the second floor and not fall down to the first floor or you know, have this building collapse on us is because of those steel beams. Just as uh, this building is held up by steel beams, we are held up by our understanding of biblical truth, right? This building is only as strong as the steel beams that are holding it up. And likewise, we are only as strong as our understanding and our grasp of biblical truth. So that's why we need to have a healthy grasp of theology. This building needs the beams to be structurally sound. We need to have a healthy grasp of substantive biblical truths to be sound and healthy and sustained spiritually. And even apart from, you know, the trials that we will inevitably face, keep in mind that as a Christian, you will never grow beyond your understanding of the Bible. It's just not going to happen. Like, just like this building 
isn't going to grow beyond whatever framework is put in place, you and I won't grow beyond whatever biblical and theological understanding that we possess. And so that's why these verses, and really a lot of the rest of the letter of 1 Peter, is so heavily theological. Now, getting back to the passage here, Peter's just referred to his readers as elect exiles in verse 1. Then in verse 2, he elaborates on that doctrine of election in four ways. So remember, election is simply the teaching that God has chosen those of us who are Christians for himself, right? We are his chosen people, his elect people. And we see in verse 2, like grammatically, everything in verse 2 is related to that word elect in verse 1. So uh, there are four qualities of our election that it spells out. First, Peter says, first quality, we are elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. By the way here, notice the, the Trinitarian arrangement of what Peter says in this verse. He first talks about the Father, then about the Holy Spirit, and then about Jesus. So all three persons of the Trinity play a vital role in saving us from our sins. And so our election is, first of all, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. And that, that word foreknowledge, uh, I don't think just means that God looked forward in time, saw uh, who, which individuals would put their faith in him, and then chose them on the basis of that foreseen faith. That is a, uh, a widespread and maybe intellectually respectable interpretation of uh, foreknowledge, but that is not the interpretation I believe is best. I, I believe there's a better one. Um, one indication of this is in Romans 8.29. It, it teaches that God didn't just foreknow a fact about certain people, like that they would put their faith in him. It actually says he foreknew those people themselves, right? He didn't foreknow something about them. He foreknew them. Before they were born, he set his affection on them and determined to have a unique relationship with them. Uh, we don't have time for all these, but additional verses that, that support this understanding of foreknowledge, uh, if you want to jot them down, include Jeremiah 1.5, Amos 3.2, and Matthew 7.22 and 23. The point is that our election by God is totally unmerited and undeserved. God didn't choose to save us because we were worthy of being chosen. We were actually profoundly unworthy. Uh, and said so the reason God chose us is simply because that's just what he desired to do. He set his affection upon us before time even began. And in his love, determined that we would be recipients of his saving grace. Then second, Peter says, we're elect not only according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, but also in, or we might say, by the sanctification of the Spirit. That word sanctification simply means being set apart as holy. Uh, for example, it's not a perfect illustration, but there's a sense in which we have set apart these Lord's Supper trays and plates that you see up here for a holy purpose. You know, if I came in here during the week and I 
you know, found someone like eating their lunch off of one of the Lord's Supper plates, I would think that would be a bit unusual and unexpected, right? Because those plates weren't made for a casual meal. They were made for the Lord's Supper. And they're, they're set apart, sanctified for something special. Similarly, through the work of the Holy Spirit, Christians are sanctified or set apart as well. We're set apart from a life of sin in order to live for God. One aspect of this occurs instantaneously at our conversion when God sets us apart for himself. Uh, This is often referred to as positional sanctification since it primarily involves a change in our position. And that positional sanctification that occurs instantaneously at conversion is foundational for another kind of sanctification, which is often referred to as progressive sanctification. It's progressive in that it takes place gradually over a lengthy period of time, really our our entire lives. And it involves a change, not in our position, like, like the first kind, but rather a change in the way we actually live. Uh, Essentially, progressive sanctification refers to the the lifelong journey of growing in godliness. Like we gradually become more and more set apart to God in the way we live. And as I look at what Peter writes in this verse, I don't see any reason why he can't be referring to both kinds of sanctification. Through the Holy Spirit, Christians are both positionally and progressively set apart to God. And since Peter's relating it to the doctrine of election, we might say God's chosen us to be set apart to him. He's separated us from the common things of this world and set us apart for something holy, namely to know him, to have a relationship with him, to worship at his feet for all eternity. And then moving forward in the verse, Peter says that we are elect for obedience to Jesus Christ. God shows us for a purpose. There's something he intends for us to do. And that something, we see, is obedience to Jesus. You know, this obedience is so foundational to what it means to be a Christian that the apostle Paul actually uses it synonymously with conversion. In 2 Thessalonians 1.8, he says that God will judge those who do not obey the gospel. That's the phrase he uses, obey the gospel. Typically, we might expect Paul to talk about somebody believing the gospel. Probably the most natural way to say it and the way that he says it in many other places. And yet here, he talks about the need to obey the gospel. And of course, this initial obedience to the gospel manifests itself in a subsequent lifestyle of obedience as well. And back in our main passage, we see Peter likewise affirming that obedience to Jesus is an essential component of Christianity. Like genuine Christian faith entails a change not only in what you believe, but also in the way you live. In fact, I would say that a change in our beliefs inevitably 
leads to a change in our lives. Like you, it's just impossible to have one without the other. Like if your faith in Jesus is genuine, it's just it's going to show up in the way that you live. In addition, um, as we think about this phrase for obedience to Jesus Christ, thinking of the historical situation of Peter's original audience, I believe Peter's also reminding them that it's okay to be treated as outcast by society. Like, it's okay if society rejects you. Because, Peter's saying, your job isn't to earn the approval of society, but to earn the approval of Jesus, right? Their ultimate allegiance shouldn't be to Caesar or to some regional governor or to the social norms of the day. Instead, for Peter's readers, their ultimate allegiance is to Jesus. He's the one that they're ultimately responsible to obey. Uh, you know, it kind of reminds me of the way children uh, will sometimes behave. Uh, many times, younger or older siblings will take it upon themselves to kind of you know, boss around their younger siblings and act as though their younger siblings are obligated to obey them. And so one of the things that parents have to do, in addition to talk to the older sibling, is you also have to talk to the younger sibling and like remind them that their older sibling isn't in charge here. They're, they're, they're not the boss. Their responsibility isn't to obey their older sibling, but rather to obey mom and dad. Similarly, Peter is reminding us that our duty as Christians is to obey Jesus. We shouldn't be worried about seeking society's approval, but rather about seeking Jesus's approval. We're elect for obedience to Jesus Christ, not of anyone else. And then finally, Peter says, we're elect not only for obedience to Jesus, but also for sprinkling with his blood. This sprinkling with blood is a reference to what happened in several places in the Old Testament, and particularly in Exodus 24, 3 through 8, when Moses sprinkled the Israelites with the blood of animal sacrifices in order to symbolize their entrance into a covenant relationship with God. Uh, the blood symbolized the lives of those animals that were sacrifice to atone for the sins of God's people. It was as if the animals uh, bore the sins of the Israelites instead of the Israelites having to bear their own sins. And the result is that the Israelites were cleansed of their sins and able to enjoy a close relationship with a holy God. And so for the Israelites to be sprinkled with blood simply mean uh, it symbolized their cleansing from sin. Similarly, Peter says, we've been sprinkled, but not with the blood of any animal, right? We're sprinkled with the blood of Jesus. In reality, the blood of animals was never actually sufficient to take away sins. It just pointed forward in time to the ultimate sacrifice, the sacrifice God's own son on the cross. Jesus died on the cross in order to make atonement for our sins. Like God's wrath was poured out on Jesus, so it wouldn't have to be poured out on us. 
So as a result, when we put our faith in Jesus to rescue us on the basis of his sacrificial death and subsequent resurrection from the dead three days later, we are cleansed and forgiven. That's what Peter's referring to when he speaks of us being sprinkled with the blood of Jesus. He's referring to our cleansing and forgiveness, which are prerequisite, of course, for having a relationship with God and enjoying eternal life in heaven. And this really is the quintessential aspect of our election. God's elected us to be saved from our sins and enjoy eternal life one day in heaven. So in a sense, it really doesn't matter that much how we're treated on this earth. It doesn't matter how intense the opposition becomes or how uncomfortable the social exclusion becomes or even how painful the persecution becomes. I mean, who cares? Like, we're saved, right? We are God's elect people. He's chosen us for salvation. And so for those who are Christians, the next time you're tempted to feel discouraged at the way things are going in our society or maybe resentful, for how you're being treated, or, or even anxious as you wonder what's going to happen in the future, just remember that you are one of God's elect. Like, he's chosen you, and he loves you, and he won't let any lasting harm come to you. You might be in exile now, but God has promised to be with you every step of the way during this earthly exile and bring you safely through it all until one day he calls you to your heavenly home. Like our future is unshakably secure. That's the confidence we have as God's elect and dearly loved people. Brothers and sisters, never forget that we are on the winning team here. We are on the real right side of history. <laughs> you know, the, the right side of history isn't what some purple-haired professor at Harvard says it is. It's not what some social influencer says it is. It's not what some talk show host says it is. We know the real right side of history from reading the Bible. And according to Peter, here in our main passage... We as Christians are on the real right side of history. We are God's elect. So no matter how bad things get in this country, there is ultimately no reason for us to be discouraged or anxious or intimidated and every reason for us to remain steadfast in our Christian convictions and to be engaged in the gospel mission of sharing the gospel that Jesus has called us to, and to look forward with joyful anticipation to what God has promised for our future. After all, as Romans 8.31 says, if God is for us, who can be against us? And also this morning, if you're here and haven't yet put your trust 
in Jesus, I want you to know that God offers his salvation to you as well. Like you also can become one of God's people and enjoy all of the blessings and benefits that we've talked about this morning. God has his arms wide open. The offer is there. The promise is real. If you will put your trust in Jesus, you too can experience this incredible joy in the present and hope for the future that we've been talking about. So I would encourage you not even to leave here today until you have put your hope in Jesus alone for rescue. Everything else will let you down. Every person you look to, every political leader you look to, every family member you look to for your ultimate hope will let you down. But Jesus will never let you down.